1: The eighteen sixty election could have been Sam Houston versus Lincoln. Houston is, of course, a Texas hero. Starts as a politician in Tennessee Who he's a soldier with Andrew Jackson. He's a good soldier. He, Jackson's his mentor. Like Jackson, he rises up in politics. Like Jackson, he becomes governor of Tennessee and marries into a prominent family. But very quickly, it all goes to pot. He ends up quitting the governorship and leaving. As to what happened, a reporter says a thousand tales are afloat, but maybe he's rejected by his new wife-to-be who thought him to be too country for the family. Maybe he was a drunk. Maybe both. Gives up the governorship, flees the state, and goes to live with the Cherokee. My God, has the man gone mad? Andrew Jackson says when he hears about his old friend Sam Houston and what happened. But Sam Houston gets another chance because Texas, so to speak, doesn't check references. And Houston restarted. Uh, Enough people know that he's good in a fight. And he's a pretty good leader of people. And there's going to be trouble with both Indians and perhaps the Mexican government coming up to this new settlement of Texas. They're happy to have him. Enough people know he fought with Jackson. They make him general of Texas forces right away although some of his bad side is known. The proclamation from the Texas legislature issuing the position warns him to, quote, be careful. He'll prove himself as tensions build between the Mexican government and Texas rebels. And it's Houston who leads the army that's going to face Santa Ana, his massive Mexican army. He smartly retreats until Santa Ana's force is reduced, and the ground is better, and the situation is better at San Jancito. He wins and captures Santa Ana, wins independence for Texas, and he's revered as a hero. He serves two terms as president of the new Republic of Texas. When Texas joins the Union in 1845, He becomes a U.S. senator from the state. As a senator, you know, Houston's known a lot for what he did for Texas and that story. Less talked about as his political career afterwards, but he is. He does have a significant career and he's kind of right in the middle of politics. I mean, he's a supporter of Henry Clay's Compromise of 1850. That's going to allow California in as a free state, which is angering the South. It's also the Slave Fugitive Act, which is going to anger the North. It's a series of compromises that Henry Clay, or, you know, Houston's right there with Clay on that. Two years later, when Stephen Douglas introduces the Kansas-Nebraska Bill, which breaks the Missouri Compromise and allows territories to engage in what are going to be bloody fights over whether they're free or slave. He votes against it. What fields of blood, what scenes of horror, he predicts as he votes no and speaks out against the legislation. He's considered for president by the Democrats in 1852. But after he speaks out against Kansas, Nebraska, he won't be considered for the Democratic Party anymore. Nor does he join with the Republicans. He's not abolitionist. He owns slaves. But one thing he is, is pro-union. And he'll end up running for governor of Texas, an exhausting campaign on an anti-secessionist ticket. He'll travel 1,500 miles in a win, in an attempt to convince his state not to secede. 1860 is an odd election in many ways, It's a four-way election. The Democratic Party ends up having like five conventions to try to pick nominees. They end up picking two, splitting in half. The old party democracy torn apart. It's always been a fusion party of Northerners and Southerners, even going back to that 1796 election, right? The Livingstons and Burr and Jefferson and Beckley and Madison and others. It's always been a bit of a, you know, united party of two sections but in the Democratic convention in Charleston in 1860, there end up being three separate conventions in that city. Douglas tries to get the nomination. Senators so march out on the platform question, have their own convention. The remaining Democrats meet and decide they have the votes to nominate Douglas, but they say, "Let's reconvene in Baltimore. Maybe we can put this thing back together." The Southerners meet. They also don't nominate immediately. They discuss several nominees, but they don't pick anyone. They also decide to reconvene in Baltimore. In Baltimore, there's again a split, and the two conventions have their nominees Stephen Douglas for the Northern Democratic Party and for the Southern Democratic Party, the current Vice President, John C. Breckinridge. With this implosion of the Democrats and opportunities opening up for these old line Whigs, you know, you always hear in history, right, the Whig Party ended in 1852 when they ran. Winfield Scott, that was their last candidate. And that's kind of true, his official name, National Party. But really, you have it put together again in 1860 under a different name. This time, the National Constitutional Union Party. John Crittenden, senator from Kentucky. He's 70 years old right now. He's respected. He's a compromiser, kind of in the Henry Clay School But he makes it clear in his old age he is not going to be a candidate for president. He just wants to put this party forward. Maybe they can win. They would be the one party that can compete everywhere in the country. There's nowhere the Constitutional Union Party will not be welcome. They can win. If they don't win, maybe they can kick the election to the House and try to get some kind of compromise victory there. Between the fire eaters in the South, the abolitionists in the North, maybe the constitutional unionists can save the nation. Save the nation from Link? No, from Seward. See, when the Constitutional Union Party forms, it's before the Republicans have their convention. I don't believe there's any thought that it's going to be Abraham Lincoln, a more like compromising, a more moderate Westerner. And I don't know if things would be different or not. But what, what you have to figure is what's on their mind is it's going to be the A more forceful, Easterner, anti-slavery candidate in William Seward. So they also meet in Baltimore. It's kind of a good city for a meeting point. But come down from the north, you can come up from the south to Baltimore. Horace Greeley, the newspaper editor from New York and committed to the Republicans, calls this convention a great gathering of fossil know-nothings and Southern Americans. They have no party infrastructure. They have no candidate. But there are many people under consideration. There's Winfield Scott, the Army General, who ran in 1852. There's Edward Bates, a Whig from Missouri who would also be considered by the Republicans at their convention. There's John Bell of Tennessee, a senator, former Speaker of the House in the 1830s, democrat turned Whig, quick term as Secretary of War, guy that grew to dislike Andrew Jackson, a slave owner but opposed to the expansion of slavery. Then there's Sam Houston of Texas who had gone to Baltimore, and had his supporters at the convention and in the city. His anti-Kansas-Nebraska vote, his military exploits, earned him a broad following. We could run a national hero. 23 of the 33 states in the Union at the time sent delegations to the National Constitutional Union Party. And after a parade, John Crittenden, the elder of the party, leads people through the streets to the Presbyterian Church, and under a huge banner of George Washington, the party will meet. Crittenden begins and then hands off the chair duties. He's a little old. A Washington aunt, a Whig of New York who had been governor. Hunt says, we see no south. We see no north. The platform committee agreed on. No platform at all. Merely these words. The Constitution as it is, was, and will be. A reporter noted that nothing was said in the speeches. Slave owners said nothing about slavery. Opponents of the expansion of slavery said nothing about expansion. Not a word of it here. But as speakers spoke, if anybody said the word constitution or the word union, there would be a frenzy. Or any time the flag was mentioned, there would be unyielding applause. Some speakers would have to stop because they mentioned the word flag and the crowd was clapping so much they could not go on. So there's not many issues discussed and no decisiveness during the day. Not even much politics. But in the evening, this new constitutional union party proved that it looked much like the rest of the parties. There was politicking by candlelight. And Houston and Bell were the main contenders. Bates was kind of thrown out because he uh, will accept this nomination, of this union party, but he says, you know, if the Republicans nominate me, I'm going to accept that, too. No good for this crowd. Both Houston and Bellish slave owners both had some record of limiting its expansion as Texas Senator Houston voted for a free Oregon to be admitted. He caught a lot of flack for that in Texas um, and among the other southern senators. Bell had taken similar positions Both were rabidly against secession and for union. Houston had support from all over the delegations. Of course, his own Texas, that of Kentucky. Many delegates from New York and New Jersey were here for Houston. A couple from Massachusetts. I mean, a former Democrat who could pull Democrats to this new party, a hero of wars, could bring in votes. It would toss a thunderbolt at the Democrats and the Republicans, one of his supporters said. They wouldn't know what to do with it. You can imagine looking back now, we're talking about a very different election if it's Sam Houston versus Lincoln. But what happens? How come we didn't have this event in history? And it's, well, midnight politicking and intra party politics is the best way to describe it. Whig on Whig politics. Houston is a former Democrat. They're going to use that against him. He's a little bit eccentric. He's not somebody you can control because he's so popular. They say, look to some of these Whigs whispering in their ears. Do you want to nominate this loose cannon? What if he goes against slavery? See, the Constitutional Union Party has people who are supporting slavery and people against it. You know John Bell's not going to do that. He's going to toe the party line. He's going to be reliable. Another thing they said, remember Andrew Jackson That's why we Whigs got started. We didn't like this mad general who was seeking popular support and abusing his power. What if we elect Sam Houston to become another one of those? He was friends with Jackson. How could he be a real Whig? In the end, reliability beat electability. Bell led on the first ballot, but it was close. 68 for him, 57 for Houston. On the 2nd, Houston picked up 10 delegates, but Bell picked up more, winning 138 to 67 delegates and winning the nomination. To show that this was a national party, John Bell of Tennessee was matched up with Harvard President Edward Everett. You don't know his name, and you shouldn't. People forget about failed vice presidential candidates, but one little note about Everett uh, those who follow the history of Gettysburg, Everett ends up being the guy who's going to make that huge speech before Lincoln's quick little Gettysburg address. And that's the only other way he's known in history.
0: I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for the New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian, Rana Mitter, joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th.
1: You had to act surprised then when Bell gets the news of his nomination. He is in Philadelphia. He just happens to be near a balcony, and there just happens to be supporters out there ready to hear him uh, speak. In any case, Houston supporters are disappointed here, and they want him to run. Uh, um, they want him to run his own independent campaign, which would make in eighteen sixty a fifth party campaign. But he refuses. And uh, he ends up not endorsing Bell. He doesn't endorse any national candidate. You know, he 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 runs on that pro-union ticket in Texas. Eventually, he is no longer able to serve in the governor's office because the legislature votes to succeed, form an independence, uh, independent Texas again. In an April 1861 speech, he told Texas Confederates, You may win Southern independence if God wills it after the sacrifice of hundreds of thousands of lives, but I doubt it. One of his sons will fight the Texas Confederate Army. Houston will die in 1863. Hey, let's get into some obscure electioneering tactics of the 1860 election. The four-way split allowed Lincoln to win in in 1860, especially the two-way split between the two sides of the Democratic Party. That's what gave Republicans the confidence that if they could just win the states they had won in the first election they competed with in 1856, maybe pick up a few others, they're going to win this election Democrats are divided. And that's the way often in our textbooks the election plays out, that Lincoln won because the other parties were divided. But it's actually something that's true and not true when you look at the details. It's important to consider the Constitutional Union Party and its role in that 1860 election as sometimes being the most viable competition to Lincoln and the only one that could also compete in the South in some places. John Bell will end up winning three states, Kentucky, Tennessee, and Virginia. But he comes closer uh, in Maryland, in Missouri, and Louisiana, North Carolina. Georgia's real close. Imagine Houston leading that ticket. Certainly going to bring Texas in, probably, but alt-history, right? (laughs) John Bell really thought he could win an election if he was nominated because he thought the Republicans were going to pick Seward. And he figures there's Democrats who don't like Douglas, he has some enemies, and there's Republicans who don't like Seward. Or if they like Seward, the person, they don't like his political boss, Thurlow Weed. The editor, the politician, the boss of Republicans in 1850s New York. And when Lincoln is picked, he knows it's going to be tougher, particularly for one reason. One of the secret weapons that Bell was hoping for is a fusion ticket of Whigs and anti Thurlow Weed, anti Seward Republicans, and any anti Douglas Democrats in New York to run against Seward and win the state's 35 votes. You start talking about 35 votes in the, in, um, and that big prize of New York. And you're adding a few southern states that he's going to be able to grab. You're talking about a viable election strategy here. So John Bell was not just a constitutional union joke. As sometimes you, you know, he only won three states. That's the way it looks. When you examine everything, you know, there was a chance. But it was predicated on fusion ticketing. And it's worth a discussion. The other thing to the other way to look at a possible John Bell New York strategy is to look at it in a national strategy and to think about a concept that's still around today, which is electability and viability, that people tend not to want to vote for a candidate that doesn't have a chance of winning. And that, you know, you see this with third-party candidates. Famous example was the 1980 election, where John Anderson's running along with Reagan and Carter, and at one point, 25% of people say they'll vote for Anderson. But that shrinks to just about 6% on Election Day. And in polls people said they don't want to waste their vote. You know, if they thought Anderson had a chance of winning, they'd vote for him. Well, you see the same thing present, at least in the strategy of candidates in the 19th century, because John Bell also thinks with a fusion ticket in New York and his ability to play in the border states, like the states he's going to win, Virginia, does very well in North Carolina, very well in uh, Maryland, very competitive there. So, you know, Louisiana is another state that uh, Bill can play in. So he can pick off some of these states that we think of now as Confederate states that just kind of bolted after um, after the Democrats split. That's, that's not really the case. There's a real chance there. But one of the things that's going to help you in doing that, if you can tell Southerners, hey, I can win New York, I'm viable, that might have helped Bell actually compete with Republicans, with Lincoln. And this is the strategy that they were trying to do. But if Bell's going to win, he has to take votes from the so-called Southern darling candidate, the um, John Breckinridge, who is the current vice president. He's from Kentucky. Democrats think about possibly running Jefferson Davis for this spot but decide that Breckinridge is vice president so let's run him for president. For Bell to win, he has to go after some of Breckinridge's support. He can't just attack Lincoln, can't just attack Douglas. In a four-way race, he's also got to go after Breckinridge and try to get some of those southern votes to go to his Constitutional Union Party. So Bell goes after Breckinridge and this is a really odd situation because Bell is a slave owner and a big one in Tennessee, but he's against its expansion into the territories. Breckinridge is for slavery everywhere, for constitutional protections for slavery, and he's in league with the fire eaters. Bell points out to Southerners, Breckinridge has no slaves. He could be secretly against slavery. Also, he points out Breckinridge has no house. See, Breckenridge has been in Washington, D.C. as a politician, doesn't own a home in Kentucky. When he becomes the presidential nominee, well, you can't go out and campaign, so he has to stay home when well, he doesn't have one. So he ends up taking up in a hotel in Lexington, Kentucky, and sort of that's where he's based out of for this election period. So Bell uses this as an issue, charging that, this is shocking, he's at a hotel that uses labor, from African Americans at the time who are not slaves, from free blacks, essentially. Breckinridge the fire eater candidate, also it's rumored, supported freedom for slaves in Kentucky in 1849. He supported Whigs in the past in his state. All of this stuff is brought up. Breckinridge is not used to campaigns. He doesn't know that you're not supposed to take the bait. You're not supposed to... Or what you might do as a candidate is say, these are outrageous charges. How could, you know, this says more about the people saying them. But he doesn't do anything like that. Instead, he says uh, he does defend himself. I'm not a disunionist and I won't discuss my private affairs. Well, that just leads people asking more questions. But the constitutional unionists do have one problem, and that's that Alabama constitutional unionists have their own meeting, separate from the Baltimore Convention. And if you remember that Baltimore Convention, they decided on no platform at all. Well, in Alabama, they have a meeting pledged to support Bell and Everett, but they advocate an absolute protection of slavery guaranteed in the Constitution anywhere, which means slavery can be expanded into the territories. Slavery goes wherever America goes. This is the Alabama constitutional unionist, but that's not Bell's position, and that's not the position, ostensibly, of the National Party, though by taking no position, they created a vacuum. Bell's position, when he states it, is that slavery is a non-issue. There's no change or law needed. We already have the laws. All the protections you need are already in the Constitution. Why should the North and South fight about the West, Bell says? But he's willing to accept the support of the Alabama group. They'd love to take that southern state away from Breckinridge and make his party viable. But the fact that the Alabama unionists came out with this position, that's going to end up hurt, hurting Bell north of the border states. You also have in this race Stephen Douglas, who's the northern Democrat who breaks with Buchanan and southern Democrats over the situation in Kansas and the Lecompton Constitution When he hears that Lincoln is chosen by the Republicans instead of Seward, he knows it's going to be tough. He has faced him in debates in Illinois, and he says he will put up a real devil of a fight. The other one who's really surprised by his party nominating Lincoln is William Seward. He expects the nomination. He has a crowd at his house in New York, and cannons are ready to sound. And there's delays, Of the news coming from the Chicago Convention that is to nominate him. He's the front-running major candidate. There's more delays. Telegram tells him to sit tight. He's got the governor of New York working his case in Chicago. And then the New York governor telegrams him. Very short. Lincoln nominated. Third ballot. Seward has to cancel the party. Seward has to cancel the cannons. The Seward supporters are angry just like people today when their guy doesn't win a primary, right? Let those who nominated Lincoln elect Lincoln. But if you examine the election results, the Republicans, there's evidence that the Republicans were very right to choose a Westerner. Lincoln wins the crucial state of Illinois over Douglas, who's also from Illinois and very well could have won that state otherwise. He wins it by 12,000 votes of 339,000 cast. Could Seward have? He also wins other Western states. Um, If Douglas was allowed to be the candidate of the West, could the Republicans have pulled that off? Here's an important point to make, especially for people that think that Lincoln won the election because the Democratic Party was split. In Massachusetts, Ohio, Illinois, Iowa, Minnesota, Wisconsin, New Hampshire, Connecticut, Maine, Michigan, Vermont, Pennsylvania, and Rhode Island. If you examine the votes, Lincoln's votes are enough margin in those states to swamp the other candidates, even if they were combined.
2: Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
1: The Lincoln vote is more than the Douglas vote, which is his largest competitor in most of the northern states, even when the others are added. That's 129 electoral votes for Lincoln. No split needed. He needs 152 electoral votes though. And you know, Lincoln will win California, he'll win Oregon, he'll get some votes in New Jersey. And those states indeed are states that he might not have won otherwise if there was not a split within the Democratic Party. It's better to say Republicans won because they win a good campaign, picked a good candidate, were smart about the regionality of their ticket, and they unified their party. Eastern Republicans are represented with Hannibal Hamlin as the vice presidential candidate, Lincolns for the West. Lincoln will end up vanquishing the main rival, Stephen Douglas, and his electoral college possibilities by taking Western states away. Douglas will only win Missouri in the election, and Bell is actually close there. Douglas only wins Missouri by 400 votes. He is really a force in 1860, Douglas, but the, the end electoral college votes make him look like nothing at all. We left Lincoln in, in, in our calculations here with 140 votes. That's 12 short of majority. And so we turn to New York. He has to win New York. New York is a unique situation where August Belmont, the wealthy banker and Democratic financier, where does Belmont come out of? He's the American representative of the Rothschild banking interests. And after the panics of 1830, he builds a fortune. He's a Democrat, mostly because Democrats were winning most of the time in the 1830s, 40s, and 50s. He's with the party that's in power nationally while he's building a banking empire. And he doesn't abandon his party. He backed Pierce. He backed Buchanan with donations. And in 1860, he gets behind Douglas. Belmont, and yes, his name... He is the person whose name eventually is going to be on the famous uh, racing track in New York. Uh, Belmont and New York Democrats have an idea. Stop all of our infighting. We don't need, you know, if there's a civil war between Democrats and the rest of the country, it doesn't have to be in New York. Let's put together the Douglas and Breckenridge camps. Let's get votes from one fusion slate. Belmont puts $2,500 into the fusion ticket. A lot of money back then. say, look. Anyone vote for the fusion ticket that is against Lincoln and the abolitionist. So who's ever winning the national elector vote, that's pro- you know, national vote. That's where these electors are going to likely go. They also do this in Rhode Island. They also do this in Massachusetts. So again, when you hear that comment about, hey, could Lincoln have won if the Democrats weren't split that year? It's actually attempted in New York, Rhode Island and Massachusetts. Exactly what people are saying to not have the Democrats split that year. There's talk of doing this in Georgia on the other side of splitting, of uh, joining together Douglas, Breckenridge, and Bell, but it doesn't happen. Now, this is what Belmont, the financier, is doing. When Douglas hears about it, he's not happy and wants nothing to do with it. He doesn't want to get votes from fire eaters, nor does he want to get votes from disunionists. Lincoln and the Republicans are aware of it. The Republican boss of New York State, Thurlow Weed, had been with Seward um, at this point is on the Lincoln bandwagon. There's no other choice. So he says, look, he, he warns Lincoln and others that this is going nowhere. This Belmont effort is going nowhere. Indeed, Lincoln beats the fusion Democratic ticket in New York by 50,000 votes. He wins New York State outright in majority. Doesn't need a split. So it's not the split that elects Lincoln. Remember that. Lincoln's opponents were just not very good, it turns out. He was denied a better or possibly better politician. When Southern Democrats didn't pick Jefferson Davis, he was denied a possibly better opponent. When constitutional unionists didn't pick Sam Houston, Stephen Douglas was a good opponent. He was masterful, but he was competing with a split party and out of money and Thurlow Weed liked to inform Lincoln of how much trouble he was having raising money. Lincoln had, in effect, taken Stephen Douglas out of the presidential race already when he debated him as a candidate for Senate in Illinois, and he knew exactly what he was doing. I don't think Lincoln knew at that time he'd become president for sure, but he, he knew what he was doing for the Republican Party in taking out a major Democratic presidential candidate. How did he take him out? Well, rhetorically, by forcing Douglas to in areas he needed votes in Illinois from anti-slavery voters, forcing him to take positions that would look really bad in the South. And it's exactly what happened to his presidential campaign in two years. Lincoln had another thing going for him. A movement, youth-inspired people marching in the streets. Marching past old, stodgy Democratic clubs in the cities, past the taverns full of old Whigs and Democrats with torchlight fires. When Lincoln first spoke in New England, in the cold winter weather in 1860, there were young Republicans there holding up torches. And then in those days, if you're dealing with a whale oil lamp and you're holding it up, the oil from that lamp might burn you. So what you're going to do is wear oilcloth capes. And something happened when they went to these rallies in New England and the sight of these people with the oilcloth capes, it became a thing. People started wearing them even when they weren't holding torchlight, but it certainly, helped, uh, it certainly helped you when you were. They would wear a kind of a quasi-military outfit with a cape and a military hat. Free principles, said one Pittsburgh slogan of one of these groups. A parade, the grand wide-awake parade. Lincoln Guards and the Minutemen of Pennsylvania, come join. Welcome one and all. The torches, the glazed military caps with brass or silver eagles on them, these wide-awakes were all over the North, sweeping the country, Hannibal Hamlin makes a speech. When he sees the wide awakes, he ends up joining the boys for a a parade in the city of Boston. The vice presidential candidate and 100 wide awakes. It was especially a great way for those who were too young to vote to still get involved. Republicans were probably exaggerating when they said they had a half million wide awakes out there, but they did have a lot. At some rallies, hundreds and thousands, hundreds of thousands. Democrats would complain in some of the cities that when they left their torchlight parade, it was like a scene from a battle with all of the smoke. Southerners were outraged. This was not politics, these wide awakes. These were not peaceful assemblies. This was an army in training. Secessionist, one of the secessionists, Ralph Yancey uh, from South Carolina, Yancey said, this monster body would put Lincoln in whether he won the election or not. A Texas owner warned that wide-awake groups were mobilizing, militarizing, intending to sweep the country. Of course, wide-awakes didn't reach as far as Texas, but some historians do see in them the first networks, the first organizations that proved that an Army for the Union could be formed. There were 48 wide-awake clubs in Chicago alone. Cleveland had them. Philadelphia, New York, Boston had huge, wide-awake parades, sometimes with tens or hundreds of thousands of people. Central Connecticut, Southern New Jersey had very vocal and well-known clubs. They're in Iowa, Maine, even San Francisco. Lincoln had something less dramatic, but also helpful. His surprised and disappointed rival we spoke about earlier, William Seward, decided to suck it up and go to bat for Lincoln. Something that would earn him the number two spot in 19th century administrations. Not the vice presidency, but the secretary of state. So it spoke in several cities where Lincoln as candidate could not go out and speak 19th century norms. See, Lincoln had an issue. We just talked about what ended up happening in the election. That as a moderate candidate, he benefited from that. As a Western candidate, he benefited from that. But he was being attacked on his left. The Liberty Party was running in 1860 and had a completely abolitionist candidate who was going to be more against slavery than Lincoln. Garrett Smith threatened to pull away votes from Republicans. He's a former New York congressman. He believed in soil was free, all men equal. And on top of that, he's a prohibitionist. But in 1860, he considered the Republicans just a bunch of conservative former Whigs and know-nothings. Not committed to any real principles, just wanting to win. To pick up all the glory of the anti-slavery crusade without having to do anything about it. William Seward, known a little more than Lincoln for his anti-slavery views nationally, could seal up that leak that could have cost Lincoln votes. Seward went out there on the stump. The Lincoln campaign is to inaugurate an anti-slavery policy in government. It will end the power of slavery, he said. Seward would speak for Lincoln in Michigan to a cavalcade of wide awakes on horseback. Crowd of thousand came to see him. They picked the right weapon. Seward loved to speak and could speak in multiple cities on tour without repeating the same speech. He could change the Lincoln message slightly to accommodate the crowd. And there was the official issues of the day, those that you might hear in public speeches in wide awake parades in uh, some of the rallies that the Democrats had. Uh, By the way, the Democrats hearing about all these white awakes eventually threatened to form chloroform clubs that would put the white awakes to sleep. Um, You know, you had this kind of very public campaign in all these rallies and things that would be said. And then you had the mumbling and whispering campaigns where no one would be asking the speaker for proof. The one about Breckenridge, that he was a secret abolitionist, or the very common assertions that Lincoln was, or that Douglas was a drinker, or that Lincoln would send an army into the South. Now, that turned out to be true um, with events and policies that would occur after his presidency, but it wasn't true during the campaign. And Douglas people would whisper even before that that he'd send millions of runaway slaves with his policies would end up in cities in the North and in the fields of the West competing with white people, essentially, for jobs. And that was a uh, part of Douglas's argument. This wasn't 1860 for as important it is in history and for as magnificent some of the figures are, like particularly Abraham Lincoln. This wasn't just simply a campaign of these great issue pronouncements. Breckinridge Falk charges that he was a disunionist. But he enjoyed the support of those disunionists, so it wasn't hard to do. Jefferson Davis, one of his big fans. And of course, Breckinridge's campaign had an easy target, beating up on Lincoln in the South, because Lincoln wasn't available in most ballots in the South at all. He gets a little bit. It's worth talking about Lincoln's vote in the South in 1860. It's not talked about much. He does get a few votes, uh, depending uh, on the state. He'd get 1,300 votes in Kentucky. That's his birth state. Of course, that's just nine-tenth of 1% of the voting population there. He'd get 1,800 in Virginia, 1%. And 2,000 votes in Maryland, about 2.5%. Missouri is his best southern state. And, you know, Missouri is kind of a border. And he'd get about 10%, 17,000 votes. Most of it, though, in the city of St. Louis. In most southern states, there were no Lincoln ballots. There's a pro, you know, a pro Lincoln meeting in Virginia caused the governor to call out the militia. Lincoln was a sectional party, but not by his own choice. One of the points that he's going to make in his Cooper Union speech in New York is that opponents are saying the Republicans are merely a sectional party. That's why they don't deserve to get the presidency. And there's a tiny sliver of that in some of the neo-Confederate arguments you see on the internet, when rarely you do, that um, it is legitimate to say that the people of Southburg were oppressed because they were about about to be in power was a, a party that was only from the North, that only won votes in the North. But that belies the fact that there was not available – Ballots, You know, it wasn't legal. It wasn't um safe, let's say, to cast a ballot or there were no paper ballots available for the Republican ticket in the South. And in fact, it could be considered an emergency, something that was considered like the overthrow of the state government if you were doing that. Not in Kentucky, not in all parts of Virginia, and not in Missouri, obviously, but certainly in a lot of the rest of the South. He makes a statement during this Cooper Union speech that, you know, you say we are sectional because we get no votes in your section. And in the next election, he's talking about 1860, that will be no longer true. Will you still call us sectional? Now, I don't think the scattering of votes, not even 20,000 or so that Lincoln gets in the South— Totally prove his case, but combined with the fact that there are people who are voting a unionist, because that's all of, that's available to them, that you have places like New Orleans and Mobile where there's some significant unionist population, um, that possibly some of them could be Lincoln votes if that was available. Lincoln was a little pessimistic about his chances for reelection in 1864. It's not the case in 1860 as these wide awakes come out. And as Seward comes to campaign, and and other prospects look brighter, you know, Hamlin tells him that in Maine, it's overwhelming for him. The prospect of Republican success appears very flattering. He tells Hamlin. I want to thank you for listening. The website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. There is a link there to the Patreon site uh, where you can help support us and also get a special episode and some other special episodes, one of which is Giraffe Johnson, LBJ, his withdrawal and the 1968 Chicago Convention. Thanks for listening.